All right, next week will be our last Bible study. So we're going to spend two weeks this year on the book of Job. I realize how this week how overwhelming it is, the book of Job. There's so much that could be said. It is really hard to do it in two Bible studies. I'll just say what we're going to go over today, um, if this is all you hear about the book of Job, this is not entirely satisfactory. Okay, We're, we're not going to be able to get to some of the major conclusions, but I think what we're going to talk about today is, is an important foundation. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Dear fathers, we consider one of the most relevant, important subjects for our day, the problem of a good and powerful God and a world of suffering. Please enlighten our minds, bring us closer to truth on this important subject. Amen. Well, of course, uh, the problem of human suffering, it would not be a problem if only bad people suffered. Okay, the problem with suffering is that people that, um, you know, innocent children, um, people that love God, that are his friends, suffer. Okay, I've never seen, for example, a title like this, Why Bad Things Happen to Bad People. Okay, if... Um, if only the Hitlers and the child molesters and, and those individuals um, suffered a bad outcome, uh, well, we probably wouldn't uh, worry so much about it. Okay, of course, uh, the problem is that we have, again, good people, innocent people, children, that suffer. How do we reconcile that? It is very biblical to complain about this is issue. And we can go all the way through from Abraham Remember when God came to talk to him about Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham said, uh, you can't do that. Destroy the righteous and the wicked together. Uh, David, Jeremiah, uh, it's repeated so many times. Habakkuk is one of the most important complaints on this issue, which is known as theodicy. Good God, powerful God, bad world. Injustice done in the world. And uh, the reason I quote Habakkuk here is the book of Romans picks off from Habakkuk's question, okay, and really seeks to explain this whole theodicy problem. So Habakkuk would say, oh Lord, how long must I call for help before you listen, before you save us from violence? Why do you make me see such trouble? How can you stand to look on such wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are all around me, and there is fighting and quarreling everywhere. The law is weak and useless, and justice is never done. Evil people get the better of the righteous, and so justice is perverted. Why are you silent while evil men destroy people who are more righteous than they are? How can you treat people like fish or like a swarm of insects that have no ruler to direct them? Say so we have these very pointed questions asked of the prophets. Okay, so it is okay for us to, to also ask these questions, to be bothered by the apparent injustice in the world. And, of course, Job complains many times. I'll just pick out one verse here. It's kind of sarcastic here. He's, he's really getting beaten down by the three friends who keep telling him that it's because of his sinfulness. And finally, he said, well, was a wicked, wicked person's light ever put out? Did one of them ever meet with disaster? Did God ever punish the wicked in anger and blow them away like straw in the wind or like dust carried away in a storm? Okay, and his friends, of course, came with a, a totally different... Um, version of things. So again, uh, we, when we talk about God, we use the three omnis. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. So we have an all-powerful, all 
all-present God. And we link this with the words in 1 John, God is love. So we have a God is love personified and he has all the power. And so our, our problem in wrapping our minds around this is uh, we believe God to be this way, okay? And then we just look at the world and it's hard to understand. Um, couldn't God have intervened to prevent uh, the Holocaust? Uh, was he not powerful enough? Or 9-11, okay, when that happened, uh, talk shows, I heard again and again, where was God, where was God? Uh, that was a very popular question at that time. Um, you know, you just think of all of the horrible crimes, rapes and murders that will be committed today. Okay, couldn't God intervene? Uh, we think about children uh, that starve to death, and we think about the times when God did feed people. You know, Jesus fed uh, so many people with two loaves. Uh, you remember uh, Elijah in the story where the the pot uh, never ran out of oil. Okay, so lots of examples like that. God has the power. Okay, so our question is, why does this go on if God does have the power? And it may not be encouraging, actually, just to quickly go through the Bible and to consider uh, our great heroes of faith. You know, the first two children born. Abel um, loved and served God. Cain did not. Okay, why, why did God allow Cain to kill Abel? Okay, now we're talking about Job, who will say, God declared him to be a good and righteous man. Um, Elisha did so many miracles. I mean, there are more miracles concentrated around the life of Elisha than anywhere else in the Bible except for Jesus. But yet, in the end of Elisha's life, he got sick. Okay, there was no miracle to cure him. When we get to the book of Ezekiel, we'll talk about Ezekiel's wife who died during Ezekiel's ministry. Okay, and God told Ezekiel, um, as a sign, do not mourn for her. From extra-biblical sources, but it is believed that Isaiah was uh, sawed in half in a hollow log by evil King Manasseh. Or Jeremiah, who was taken off to Egypt. And again, uh, extra-biblical sources, but it's generally believed that he was stoned to death in Egypt. Okay, why do we have these great um, heroes that have suffered such an outcome? Now, here's a good summary of uh, these people in Hebrews 11. Some were mocked and whipped. Others were put in chains and taken off to prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. Again, they're probably a reference to Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went around clothed in skins of sheep or goats, poor, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not good enough for them. They wandered like refugees in the deserts and hills, living in caves and holes in the ground. And again, these are people on God's side who seem to get the worst of it from a worldly perspective. Okay, so what's going on? And of course, this continues. This is the story of human history. Okay, John the Baptist, uh, greatest prophet of all time, according to Jesus, was beheaded when Jesus is physically there. Did not prevent the execution of John the Baptist. Of course, we know what happened to Jesus. But what about the early disciples? James was killed. Peter, crucified upside down. You read the story of Paul and how many times he was whipped and imprisoned. Okay, and finally, of course, killed. John, who wrote the book of Revelation while he was in prison on the island of Patmos. 
Okay, we could go right on through to Tyndale and Wycliffe and all of these great heroes were persecuted and killed. And God has all the power. Okay, and the, the cry of Habakkuk is really echoed in the book of Revelation. And this may not be very uh, encouraging to us because the people in Revelation shout to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, powerful God, holy and true. And again, just like Habakkuk, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? And then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Okay, so the Bible really prepares the followers of Jesus to be martyrs, not uh, rulers in the world. Remember, Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Okay, so again, how do we understand this? And not to depress you right before uh, your examination here, but... Um, really, you know, life is kind of like riding on a train that seems to go faster and faster, and it really is true. As you get older, every year just goes by faster and faster. And for every single person, um, it ends at a brick wall at some point. You don't know when it's going to crash, okay, but it happens. And unless Jesus comes back in, in our lifetime, every single one of us will end up at the gr in the grave here at some point. And in a room with this many people in it, it's inevitable that some of us will uh, experience incredible injustice, either uh, in disease or family members affected by conditions. You'll see it every day when you work in the hospital. Okay, this is a, not a, this world is, a, is really a terrible place. Okay, so we come back to the book of Job. And now we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And we could take away the quotes around the word good because we have God's own endorsement of Job. Did you notice my servant Job? The Lord asked. There is no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. Faithful and good. And in other translations, the King James uses the word perfect. Perfect and upright. And in the New Living, he's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. A man of complete integrity, he fears God and stays away from evil. And so it seems to me God goes out of his way in this story to eliminate the possibility that we could say Job was being punished because of his sinfulness. Okay, God makes this incredibly strong declaration about Job and who Job was at the beginning of the book. So what happened to Job was not because God was punishing him, because we, here we have God's words. And the book concludes, remember, uh, God comes on the scene, he rebukes Job's three friends, and he says, you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. Okay, so what happened to Job, again, was not because of, of something that required punishment. So most of you probably know the story, but uh, just in case, let, let's read through uh, the, the initial couple chapters of Job and, and uh, understand what's going on. When the day came for the heavenly beings to appear before the Lord, and, and we'd always want to pick up on this whenever we can bring in the larger picture of things, uh, this is not just a little uh, encounter between Satan and God. Okay, the heavenly beings. Remember, there is an onlooking universe, angels. Okay, they're very much a part of this story. So Satan was there among them. And the Lord asked him, What have you been doing? 
if he didn't know. And Satan answered, Well, I've been walking here and there, roaming around the earth. Did you notice my servant Job, the Lord asked. Now, if you were Job, wouldn't you just cringe um, here? Your name is brought up. God initiates you here before Satan. Did you notice my servant Job? There is no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. He worships me. He's careful not to do anything evil. And Satan replied, Would Job worship you if he got nothing out of it? You've always protected him and his family and everything he owns. You bless everything he does, and you've given him enough cattle to fill the whole country. But now, suppose you take away everything he has. He will curse, curse you to your face. All right, the Lord said to Satan, everything he has is in your power, but you must not hurt Job himself. And so Satan left. And you recall what happened. First trial, loss of family and wealth. So one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's home, a messenger came to Job. He said, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, men from Sheba attacked. They took the livestock and massacred the servants. Now again, how does Satan do that? Okay, what's the mechanism? Interesting to consider the, the power here that, that Satan apparently has. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, a fire from God fell from heaven. Now, who sent that fire? A fire from God. Well, there it is in the Bible. Fire from God fell from heaven and completely burned your flocks and servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three companies and made a raid on the camels. They took the camels and massacred the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Okay, kind of scary to think about here, the, the power of the adversary uh, if he's allowed to uh, operate uh, without restraint. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were eating, drinking wine at their oldest brother's house when suddenly a great storm swept across the desert and struck the four corners of the house. And we have the elements here involved. It fell on the young people and they died. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother, and naked I will return. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Could you say that if all of that had just happened in such a, a brief period of time? Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God for doing anything wrong. Okay, he certainly did later in the book. Okay, but if we're keeping score at this point, we'd certainly have to uh, say that, that God is ahead here at, at, at this point. Okay? But again, everyone's together. Imagine the, the big company here. When the day came for the heavenly beings to appear before the Lord again, Satan was there among them. And again, God initiates this. Where have you been? Satan answered, I've been walking here and there, roaming around the earth, spending a lot of time hanging out around Job. And God said, did you notice my servant Job? There's no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. He worships me. He's careful not to do anything evil. You persuaded me to let you attack him for no reason at all. Again, who attacked Job? Yeah, this was Satan. But Job is still as faithful as ever. And Satan replied, well, a person will give up everything in order to stay alive. But now, suppose you hurt his body. He will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, all right, he's in your power but you are not to kill him. Okay, poor Job here. 
I mean, just imagine here that uh, Satan was given this kind of power. So the second trial was physical suffering. Satan left the Lord's presence and made sores break out all over Job's body. Satan can do that. Job went and sat by the garbage dump and took a piece of broken pottery to scrape his sores. His wife said to him, you are still as faithful as ever, aren't you? Why don't you curse God and die? And Job answered, you are talking nonsense. When God sends us something good, we welcome it. How can we complain when he sends us trouble? Even in all this suffering, Job said nothing against God. Okay, and uh, we have to acknowledge here Job's incredible uh, depression. We'll get more into the story and the interaction between the three friends next time. But Job would say, despite having just said that, I hate my life in Job 7. I do not want to live forever. Leave me alone because my days are so brief. Okay, he really was uh, depressed. Now, again, I think it's always important if we can take a step back and imagine that everything doesn't just revolve around us. We've talked so much in this Bible study about this cosmic conflict. Okay, the war in heaven described in uh, Revelation 12. And here we have Satan and God and the heavenly beings okay, involved in this. So uh, I think, again, we should see that, uh, hey, there, there is something for the angels to learn in this as well. Okay, the story is for them. Remember, the earth is a spectacle, literally, literally a theater for the whole world of angels in 1 Corinthians. And in Ephesians, God, who is the creator of all things, kept his secret hidden through all the past ages in order that at the present time, by means of the church, now the church would not be a physical structure here, but uh, God's friends, those who are loyal to him, people like Job, in order that through them, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly word, world might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. So there, there is um, a, a learning curve, even for the angels here in perfection. And just one more, in First Peter, talking about the writers of the Old Testament, God revealed to these prophets that their work was not for their own benefit, but for yours. Okay, and so we are uh, to learn from this story of Job, but it's not just for us either. Okay, even going on talking about the good news by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are things which even the angels would like to understand. Okay, so uh, God is ultimately doing things to, um, I would say, secure the universe against rebellion for all of eternity. And in Revelation 12, we talked about how a third of the stars or the angels fell uh, from heaven uh, with uh, Satan. Okay, and so uh, God is trying to secure the entire universe. And just uh, one verse on this in Romans 3, though everyone else in the world is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say, he will be proved right in what he says, he will win his case in court. And the story of Job is part of the evidence, I think we could say, for God proving his case in court, for vindicating his character. And certainly the problem of suffering is, is one of the biggest challenges there. Now, if we could say trial number three, perhaps the biggest of all was the friends. Okay, these friends who God would condemn at the end of the book, next time we'll go through. Uh, be careful if, um, you know, in the church bulletin, you have a quote from the book of Job. Could be from one of the three friends. Okay, and so some of the things they said are, are quite terrible, but they, they were quite pious in the way they came to Job. While they were still a long way off, they saw Job but did not recognize him. 
And when they did, they began to weep and wail, tearing their clothes in grief and throwing dust into the air and on their heads. And then they sat there on the ground with him for seven days and nights without saying a word because they saw how much he was suffering. Right? And after seven days, then we have this incredible uh, back and forth discussion where they keep hammering Job. It's because of your rebellion. God is punishing you. And I just want to consider here that these are the first words. Eliphaz is the first of the friends, in quotes, to speak. Uh, what does this sound like to you? His inspiration for the things that he would say. Once a message came quietly, so quietly I could hardly hear it. Like a nightmare, it disturbed my sleep. I trembled and shuddered. My whole body shook with fear. A light breeze touched my face, and my skin crawled with fright. I could see something standing there. I stared, but couldn't tell what it was. And then I heard a voice out of the silence. Hey, who do you think inspired this message uh, that Eliphaz um, was, uh, you know, who did he see? Who gave him this message? I mean, isn't Satan, doesn't he have a vested interest, very much so, in what is going on? These friends were not on God's side, not on Job's side. Okay, I think it's reasonable to uh, assume, perhaps, that Satan was involved in the inspiration for the message of Eliphaz, and Job, after hearing his story, would say, you terrify me with dreams. You send visions and nightmares. Okay, so his uh, words that he came with was a nightmare to Job. So uh, the, the question here we're going to try to grapple with this week and next is suffering evidence of God's curse. That has pretty much been the assumption in human history. We could give lots and lots of examples of this, uh, just briefly, the friends, if I were to list all of the verses where the friends say it's because of your sin, uh, we'd, we'd be here for the, the rest of the time. But Eliphaz would say, think back now, name a single case where someone righteous met with disaster. Now, is that a bit ridiculous? Do you know a single righteous person that's had a bad thing happen to them? Well, that seemed to be the position of the friends. And they would say to Job, happy is the person whom God corrects. Do not resent it when he rebukes you. Now, this actually um, would not necessarily be wrong. God has certainly done things just as a loving parent would to correct, to discipline. But did this apply to Job? Okay, they're, they're making the assumption that God is correcting Job. And Job, of course, uh, was very offended by this. You've gone far enough. Stop being unjust. Don't condemn me. I'm in the right. Okay, he really was convicted that he was loyal to God. He referred to God as his friend. And he couldn't understand why this was happening to him. And so again, uh, the, the flood of messages here from the friends. Put your heart right, Job. Reach out to God. Put away evil and wrong from your home. Then face the world again, firm and courageous. Then all your troubles will fade from your memory like floods that are past and remembered no more. And they would say, you are being punished as you deserve. And one of the friends would even say, God is punishing you less than you deserve. And finally, the, the last individual, uh, Elihu, who many take the position that he was God's agent to talk some sense into Job. We'll talk more about Elihu, but he would say, any sensible person will surely agree, and the wise who hear me will say that Job is speaking from ignorance and that nothing he says makes sense. Think through everything that Job says. You will see that he talks like an evil man. To his sins, he adds rebellion. In front of us all, he mocks God. All right, so imagine having that message pounded into you over a long period of time. 
So as evidence that this is the, the mindset here in human history, uh, let's just think about the Pharisees here from 2,000 years ago, and very definitely this was their model. If you are wealthy and healthy, by definition, you are blessed by God. No question. If you are poor, if you are sick, by definition, you are cursed by God. Okay, and so the, the disciples had this same mindset. They walked by the man born blind, and they asked, would ask Jesus, Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Now, this is the only option in their mind. Was it, is it his own or his parents? Okay, two options for human suffering. Either that person sinned or their parents sinned. Okay, because obviously if you're sick, if you're born blind, okay, God must have done that to you. And Jesus' response here, very definitive, his blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. Okay, and then Jesus used that opportunity to heal the man, okay, to glorify God, but it was not because of his sin. Or when Jesus would say this, uh, so countercultural again to that mindset, how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. It is much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And again, how shocking if your definition of someone blessed by God is they're rich. And you hear Jesus say, I mean, he may just as well have said how hard it is by someone blessed by God to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, because notice the disciples' response, or the people who heard him said, who then can be saved? Because if a rich person can't be saved, someone blessed by God, uh, how is it possible for anyone to be saved? Okay, and Jesus' answer, what is humanly possible is possible for God. And so I think the, the meaning here is a rich person can't, by virtue of his riches, enter the kingdom. That's impossible. Okay, anything is possible for God. But again, it totally went against the mindset of that day. You know, lots of examples of this. The rich man and Lazarus. If you were in that time and, and believed, again, in this particular mindset, as you're hearing Jesus tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus, well, obviously the rich man is blessed by God. Lazarus has sores, he's poor, he's a beggar. Obviously he's cursed by God. And I think you know there must have just been a gasp when Jesus here in the middle of the story says, well, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Yes, he's going the wrong direction. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And this would be a very shocking parable um, for that time, for that mindset. So anyway, we, we generally uh, believe this. There was a natural disaster in Jesus' day. A tower fell over. And uh, I like how Jesus initiates here. Well, what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more sinful than other people living in Jerusalem? No, I guarantee they weren't. Okay, and so when we see natural disasters, could, uh, it seems to have come up so much here in recent years. Hurricane Katrina, uh, lots of sermons preached. Well, this was God's judgment on an American Sodom. Okay, obviously something big like that has to be initiated by God. Or some of you might have heard of the uh, small little tornado that went through Minnesota a couple years ago and it grazed the, uh, the top of this church tower. You can see here the cross got uh, knocked over there by the tornado. Okay, there was a very well-known, uh, one of the most influential 
pastors in this country, not Pat Robertson, uh, but John Piper, who said, well, this was uh, God's judgment because they were discussing their position on homosexuality. Or, uh, as many of you know, the earthquake in Haiti, it was uh, suggested that this was, uh, again, God's judgment because of the voodoo that's practiced in Haiti. Okay, so all the way to our current time, we see these things and we assume that it is always the hand of God uh, that, is, that is involved. But again, if we turn back to the book of Job, which kind of pulls back a curtain here, an incredible uh, revelation, I think. Notice, Satan left the Lord's presence, and the assumption of the people who saw what happened is the fire of God fell from heaven, because who else is going to send fire from heaven? Okay, but we know from reading the book that, that this was uh, Satan's involvement. And we have Jesus' words here that... God is kind to the righteous and to the wicked. He makes sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Okay, God treats people that way. Well, um, I think uh, some time ago, it was probably last year, I mentioned the, the difficulty that uh, many have had in recognizing and fully given uh, status here to God having an enemy. And I mentioned uh, Celsus, who uh, way back in 175 would be quite uh, offended that we even talk about God having an enemy. And this is very significant information because it suggests that to the early Christians that this whole cosmic conflict theology was a dominant view. Okay, because he would criticize the Christians. Their utter stupidity of the Christians can be illustrated in any number of ways, but especially with their misreading of the divine enigmas and their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God whom they know by the name devil or Satan. That is ridiculous. You can't have an all-powerful God and an enemy. An all-powerful God would eliminate an enemy. And he would go on, it is blasphemy to say that when the greatest God indeed wishes to confer some benefit upon men, he has a power which is opposed to him and so is unable to do it. Again, this was a dominant view of the early Christians, and it was really lost for a very long period of time. This idea of a cosmic conflict. Well, uh, Hitler is maybe a good parallel um, for Satan, if we want to try to understand this a little bit. Now, um, did Hitler actually pull the trigger on all of the millions of people that were killed in World War II, or did he actually turn the valve on the gas chamber uh, that killed uh, so many millions of Jews? Um, no, he didn't. But we can say, when we look at the Holocaust and World War II, that the, the power behind it, the instigator, the, the ruler of that kingdom, um, was Hitler. So I think we could say, quite safely, that the Holocaust was the result. We see the manifestation of Hitler's kingdom, or a person who would rule a kingdom like Hitler. And to try to explain the Holocaust to someone, and to deny the existence of Hitler... Uh, would that make a lot of sense? I mean, you'd have to bring it back and describe what Hitler was like, what his ideal was, his beliefs. It would only make sense to describe such a tragedy by going back to the source. Okay, and I think in the same way, if we're going to look at planet Earth and leave out as uh, unnecessary information the rebellion of Satan, who is the power behind this whole rebellion, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, it's like... Uh, 
Star Wars without Darth Vader or the Emperor, or you know, we're going to get together, we're going to plan how to take over the planet. No, don't bring them up. Okay, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so we have to include that. And uh, three times Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. Is it comforting to know that the prince of this world is Satan? Well, not really, but it might help explain some things. And a good example here, Jesus was in church, and remember he saw this woman who was crippled. And he said, now here is this descendant of Abraham who Satan has kept in bonds for 18 years. Now, does that mean that Satan was actively did something in that woman to make her back crooked? Um, well, I don't know, not necessarily, but I think what Jesus is saying here, this is the result of Satan's kingdom. This is the result of the satanic separation that has occurred in our world. Look at this woman. She, should she not be released on the Sabbath? Okay, so again, with all of the disease and suffering that we see, uh, it is ultimately, does tie back all the way to the rebellion and the separation between our earth um, and God. We mentioned this before, so I won't um, go into detail on this, but we've asked what happened to Satan in the Old Testament. Uh, there are really only three very specific direct references to Satan in the Old Testament. We talked about why there's a relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament and why he's unveiled fully in the New Testament, even in the Garden of Eden. We don't, he's not named. He's just a serpent. It isn't until Revelation that he's specifically named. That serpent, the great serpent of old, that was uh, Satan or the devil. And it's interesting to consider here that when we uh, consider references to Satan in the Old Testament, in older places, God is responsible for everything. We read about the census in 2 Samuel. Here's the description. The Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea. I thought God did not tempt anyone to count the people of Israel and Judah. And then we read in Chronicles, one of the last books of the Old Testament. Same story. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel. So he made David decide to take a census. Okay, so we, we kind of see this... Uh, um, understanding greater appreciation for the role of Satan um, here in, we, in this later account. Well, what did Job understand? Job had no idea. He was never told what happened in heaven. Okay, but it is fascinating that Job did get introduced to someone at the end of the book. Remember, God comes on the scene. And next time we'll talk about why God thundered as he came on the scene. But then he introduces Job to someone. What do you think about this beast? Can you catch Leviathan with a fish hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a rope through his snout or put a hook through his jaws? Touch him once and you'll never try it again. You'll never forget the fight. Anyone who sees Leviathan loses courage and falls to the ground. When he is aroused, he is fierce. No one would dare to stand before him. Who can attack him and still be safe? No one in all the world could do it. Let me tell you about Leviathan's legs and describe how great and strong he is. And this goes on and on about this beast. His pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride. Nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather. Even angels, and some translations say gods or the strongest, run for cover when he surfaces, cowering before his tail thrashing turbulence. His stony heart is without fear, as unyielding and hard as a millstone. When he rises up, even the strongest are frightened. They are helpless with fear. 
There is no sword that can wound him, no spear or arrow or lance that can harm him. For him, iron is as flimsy as straw and bronze as soft as rotten wood. There is no arrow that can make him run. Rocks thrown at him are like bits of straw. To him, a club is a piece of straw and he laughs when men throw spears. Nothing on earth is as equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Now, who would we say is king over all that are proud? And if we read on to look in other places about Leviathan, in Isaiah 27, this is in the context of an end of the world uh, description. And here's Leviathan again. On that day, the Lord will use his fierce and powerful sword to punish Leviathan, that slippery snake. Now, how many slippery snakes are there in the Bible? Leviathan, that twisting snake, he will kill that monster which lives in the sea. So Satan is veiled in the Old Testament. Even the passages we've read so many times in Isaiah, it's the king of Babylon. Okay, and we read into that Satan. Uh, in Ezekiel, it's the king of Tyre. But then the description of the king of Tyre is uh, the mighty angelic guardian who is in Eden. Okay, so we have these veiled references. But when we get to the New Testament, it's very, very clear. Paul would refer to Satan as the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And John, after Jesus, would say the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So just a, a few uh, additional um, things here, and we'll, we'll pick up from here next time. We've talked about the Lord's Prayer several times uh, recently and how it's so wonderful it opens up, hallowed be thy name. In other words, may your character be seen throughout the world. Well, Jesus would say, as a model prayer, that we should ask, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is quite significant because where is God's will being done? Being done in heaven. Okay, we are to ask that God's will be done on earth. Okay, this would imply that the stuff we watch on the news is not God's will. We are to pray for God's will to be done. And by the way, we conclude, we come to the end of the prayer and say, keep us safe from the evil one. Okay, this prayer should make us consciously aware of this conflict. We have a hard time accepting that things could happen that are not willed by God. But what do you think about these verses? In 1 Timothy, God desires all men to be saved. God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Will everyone be saved? Will everyone come to a knowledge of the truth? Uh, and if not, wouldn't that suggest God's will is not being done much of the time? And Second Peter, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Will some perish? God desires that all to come to repentance. So again, we have things happening on this world that are not God's will. What we're going to ask next time is why God doesn't use his force more often. Why can't God will things to happen? Okay, and then finally, Paul would say, here's the real enemy. We're not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. It's so abundantly clear in the New Testament. We, we need to be consciously aware of this conflict that we're involved in, and the enemy is not a human being. Okay, in Revelation, maybe I won't, won't read these here, but... Uh, again, is it relevant to talk about the enemy given that here this prediction for what happens in the end is the devil comes down, he's full of rage, 
and that everyone worships the dragon. It used its vast authority, forced the earth and all who live on it to worship the beast, and it deceived all people living on earth. Okay, we, we need to know Satan's agenda, what he's done in the past, given that it doesn't look too promising here, at least for uh, what is uh, described in the book of Revelation. Okay, so the, the point that I hope to make in this Bible study is that the book of Job should bring us the fingerprints, the driver's license, the DNA, uh, the evidence to say that an enemy has done this, not God. So when we look at all of these things going on in this world, we should be able to tell our patients who ask, why have I come down with Lou Gehrig's disease? Uh, now, you might not tell the patient, well, it's Satan that's done it to you, but um, you, I, don't, I don't think it would be uh, reassuring or helpful for the patient to say that God has willed this um, for your life. Okay, Jesus told the parable and said an enemy has done this, not God. And next time we'll need to ask why God has allowed the enemy to do this. But if I could just conclude, again, we take the Bible as a whole. When we consider suffering, we must incorporate into our model of suffering that God did not eliminate evil by force. God's solution to evil, as uh, shocking as it may be, was to become a human, to take the lowest form, to suffer all of the abuse of this rebellious planet, including at the hands of the adversary, that this was his means of victory. In 1 John 3, the Son of God appeared for this very reason. And we don't very often describe him coming for this very reason, but it was to destroy what the devil had done. And then finally, in Hebrews 2.4, Jesus himself became like them, became like us. He shared our human nature. Again, why did he do that? He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil. And so to, to consider that God overcame evil, not by power or by force, but through incredible condescension, ultimately leading to death in the tomb. And uh, next time we'll try to consider how that death was victorious over Satan. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, certainly uh, this is something that we don't have all the answers to, but we ask that you would give each one here insight into this very important subject. Help us to be a bright light in the world that when people and everyone asks, how could this happen? Uh, that, that we would have the wisdom to describe what has happened in a way that uh, you do appear good and that you do appear to be a God who is love, love and powerful. Help us to take part in bringing this uh, conflict to a close. Amen.